Hi there, welcome back. Let's see what Midas Touch is up to. Thanks for 167k. Holding his own party hostage, Trump crushes his own party as Dem score surprise win. Welcome, welcome, welcome to On Democracy with F.P. Wellman. I am Fred Wellman, your host. You're in the right place, I hope. Uh, man, I, you know, another crazy week, as always. It's primary season is, is heating up the Republican Party. Everyone and his brother and his sister signing up to run against Trump. I mean, kind of run against Trump, but really not apparently running against Trump because nobody wants to make him mad. We have word now that Chris Christie's joining the race, which is just high entertainment. You know, my friend and former guest of the show, Jeff Timmer, I uh, put it well the other day. So the only thing between getting sleepy. a rat race right now. Trump and the Republican nomination is his aorta and a prison cell. <laughs> and I couldn't agree more. So to see what you know, to see what's coming though, and and, and you're still suffering by it. If you if you're like me and you suffer by being very online, uh, ah. you know you may see this week where Trump showed what happened to you. If you cross him even the slightest way, no matter how loyal you've been, no matter how much you've debased yourself for Donald J. Trump, he will always turn on you. Like my friend Rick Wilson says, everything Trump touches dies. And so up on the screen, we'll throw up this, this truth, you know, from True Social, his failing social network. He put this out the air and I says, Kaylee, <laughs> Kaylee, milk toast, McNamee just gave out the wrong poll numbers of Fox News. I'm 34 points up on D Sanctimonious, not 25 up. While 25 is great, it's not 34. She knew the number was corrected upwards by the group that did the poll. The rhinos and globules can have her. Fox News should only use real stuff. <laughs> now, mind you, folks, for those at home <laughs> listening, he spelled it M-I-L-K-T-O-A-S-T. <laughs> Milk toast. You know. Some things never change, and Donald Trump being an idiot is one of them. So we've got a lot to talk about. Our guest, we're going to talk about this coming shit show. I can't wait to get out going, so let's just get on with the show. Oh, man, I always do this. I'm so happy to have you. Matt, Matt we got to talk to Odessa. we got to get some EDM instead of rock and roll, man. So... Odessa, if you're listening, 
<laughs> you know, we want your music. All right, I, I'm going to email that. Matt, remind me to email Odessa. We want new music. All right, so welcome. I am your host, Fred Wellman. This is Anta Moxie. One of the roles of this show is to give you a perspective on how things are out going out here in the Midwest, the hinterlands, you know, the flyover states, the you know, the red states that I live in. As you know, we're broadcasting from the beautiful heart of the country in St. Louis, Missouri. I, I try to offer you insight on the battles we see and the battles we face in our democracy out here. My guest today has been a brilliant source for me in this effort for quite some time and was a guest in our first season on Collins. So I'm thrilled to have him back. My Wisconsin-based friend John Nichols joins the show in our in our much-updated studio. John's a pioneer and political blogger, writes about politics for the nation as a national affairs correspondent, and is the associate editor of the Capitol Times in Madison, Wisconsin. He's one of the best known progressive voices. I could list his seven books, but there's seven books, and he's constantly mentioned. John, man, welcome back to the show. It's so great to see you and have you back here. It's an honor to be with you, brother, and it's good to see you in your new studio. Right, kind of fancy, right? We're getting uh, yeah, soundproof you know, there. It looks. I like. got sound. Oh yeah, we're a real yeah, official yeah. studio, man. We're not doing this in my basement no more. <laughs> send you. I'm going to send you a book for your stand-up. Oh, there. good, fantastic. I usually like. Well, I definitely <laughs> plug. I failed to plug your latest books. So send the yeah, books. Ahead. These are all. These are all guest books, John. <laughs> so you know, if I can get it for free, that's why I do the podcast. Seriously, <laughs> I just do I'm this to that. talk talk to cool people and get free books. Matt knows. Matt also gives me. Free Waters, so that's why the whole thing. The whole thing is so. You know, I don't want to waste a lot more time than I've already wasted. Let's just jump right in. Obviously, the hot topic right now is the debt ceiling negotiations, the agreement that's working its way through Congress as we record the show. I don't know. We don't know if it's going to pass yet or not. There's significant crying among the MAGA crowd. I kind of want to start first, though. With the actual process, right? I did a piece yesterday for my Substack um, where I talked about. Oddly, and I, maybe I'm wrong, I hope you disagree or don't, um, it mm-hmm. felt normal. You know, one of the things we talk about a lot, I talked about in the past, John, was everybody thought we just returned to normalcy when Biden got elected. And, and, and norm, returning to normal was an effort. You have to fight, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in the end, as I was sitting there yesterday looking at the stories about the background of the negotiations, what I found was some old school normalcy, right? I mean, it's like they actually negotiated and, and some people gave things they didn't want to give away, but they, they had their red lines. I mean, what's your take on not just the agreement and the, and the policies, but what you see from the process viewpoint? Yeah, I, I think you're you're coming at it in an interesting and good way, uh, although not one that we should necessarily accept. Right? No, and, 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 and get used to. <laughs> right. This, is, this may be normal, but it was never a healthy normal. Yeah. Right? I love um, the debt ceiling goes back to the World War One era, and I mean it's not the Constitution; it's a it's a false construct, and it was created at a at a certain time when when there was frankly a lot of distrust for the federal government uh, in the pre FDR era on the part of Republicans and Democrats, and mm-hmm. so it, it there were all sorts of things going on there. Um, it it hasn't really been updated in the way that it should be, and mm-hmm. so we shouldn't accept this as normal. But once with that said, yeah, this is pretty close to normal. Right. Why is it close to normal? I can tell you why, and it's one that upsets, uh, I think, some Democrats and a lot of Republicans. And that is that Joe Biden is a man of Washington, yeah. right? Yep. I mean, 36 years in the Senate, yep. eight years as vice president, now the better part of four years as president of the United States. I mean, this is a guy more than 50 years, wow. you know, hardwired into D.C., going back to the days of Richard Nixon, Right. Yeah. And when you had liberal Republicans in Congress, people who were literally to the left of Biden when Biden was a young Democratic senator on yep. the Republican side. And so he kind of knows 
these dynamics really, really well. He knows every bit of the history. And for all the Republicans who say, oh, yeah, he's not on his game, this is exactly where he is on his game, right? right? It is this kind of thing. This is where he comes from and what he understands. Now, here's the flip on it, which is kind of interesting as well. Kevin McCarthy is also a man of Washington, hmm. right? Yeah. He came up through California politics in that, you know, kind of difficult challenging time in California where the Republican Party was beginning to collapse. He was in the state legislature there. He chose not to necessarily be a bomb thrower, but rather a somebody who tried to, you know, work with within the system, right? Right. A little bit. And then he transferred into Congress. And while he, you know, kind of initially in Congress he did that young guns thing with Paul Ryan and, and people like that. The truth of the matter is he settled pretty quickly into a leadership track. And he's been there forever, right? Yeah. It's, this is now, he's a lifer. Yeah. And he's not going up to the Senate. He's not going up to governor in his state. He's going nowhere but exactly where he's at. So you've got two men in Washington who go in a room. Now, they both got problems in their own parties. They both have challenges to deal with. But at the end of the day, when they're sitting one-on-one, right, yeah. they both understand what they're trying to do, right? It is, it is to govern. And um, this is not to make McCarthy out to be a good guy. Um, he's a bad player and frankly he's a harmful player and there are things in this deal that I really we could rip it to shreds in a lot of ways but if you want to understand the core dynamic that normalcy you're talking about that's the root of it right and this is the politics that I grew up on right this is what we they they negotiated not everyone everything they wanted it was kind of I was I I joke a lot I uh, I've I've gotten into soccer I admit it freely I'm late to the game but we have uh, we have St. Louis City SC here in St. Louis now we're all going mad for them they're a terrific young uh, team Um, and what I love is the I use an analogy of that in soccer you know it isn't just wins and losses you can also move forward with ties at the end of the season if if teams are tied for points total the team that got the most goals during the season will move forward. And, and and I think that kind of represents old politics, right? It wasn't always W's and L's. And it seems like we've gotten into a politics in the last 10, 10 20, 30 years that if it's not a win, it's a loss, right? Yeah. And in many ways, um, both sides, we're both doing it. I admit freely that I do the same thing as, oh, as a too. progressive, right? Um, yeah. And in this agreement, I do see. I do see wins. I see losses. I see ties. Um, I see things I don't want in there. But I also, but I also don't see economy collapsing next week, which is kind of cool. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, on balance, that's sort of a good thing, right? right. So we don't collapse everyone's 401k, right? <laughs> Especially, you know, folks who are like getting toward retirement age or something like that. Right. Um, so here's the bottom line on this. Uh, are there really bad things about this deal? Of course there are. Yep. Right. The idea of, you know, saying to somebody in their early fifties, um, you, if you're really falling on hard times, you maybe been laid off first from a factory, then from a warehouse, you're in a, you know, a, a small industrial city that's deindustrialized and you're hungry, right? Your family right. is hungry. You're struggling to get by and you're looking for food stamps and the government says, oh, you're, you know, in this, in this little window they've created, you've got to go, you know, find work. Right. Yeah. And that's, a, that's terrible. If it, it doesn't, A, it doesn't get people to work. Right. No. It B, um, it's, it's kind of penalizing of people. And I tell you this, we know from studies, people over 50 have a hard time finding new jobs. Oh yeah. Right. Right. So it's that part of it is really bad. And we should be, you know, very frustrated that the Republicans kind of force that as their kind of prime thing. Yeah. Some of the stuff they're doing on student loans, very bad. Some of the stuff they're doing on environment, 
really a setback at a time when we should be moving forward. Yeah. So you can see all the negatives. The biggest negative, I would say, is an acceptance of a template here. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the troublesome one. And it's not a new template. It is that we know that the Pentagon has massive waste, fraud, and abuse, right? We know that the Pentagon budget just grows and grows and grows exponentially, and military contractors, right. you know, always report excess profits, right, and all that. And yet, that was off the table, right? Out of this deal, we're going to have a 3% increase wow. in Pentagon spending, yeah. right? Yeah. What we're saying to, you know, people over 50 and students and other folks, you're going to have to go without food or you're going to have to pay more on your loans or, you know, it's, it's a terrible imbalance here. Yeah. And so all of that is the critique and it's an important critique. It's one that we should always keep in the mix. Right. However, if you, if you do put all that in the mix, right, then we come to the interesting dynamic here. To me, the most fascinating dynamic of the, the Republicans have been telling us, our Republican friends have been telling us for quite a while, Joe Biden's kind of incompetent, right? Right. Like he's they they portray him as senile Joe. What old senile Joe, right? Yeah, or you know, somehow dysfunctional or something like that. Well, I got to tell you, by just about any measure, in what what I would acknowledge, what I've just acknowledged is a deal with a lot of things I don't like in it that I would harshly criticize, and I can even understand why a progressive might vote against it, right? But acknowledging all that, there is simply no question that Biden got the upper hand yep. in these negotiations. And it's not me saying this. It's mainstream Republicans right. who are, you know, really furious about this. Yep. And the reason they're furious is because of, of some of the subtleties of what Biden did. It's so smart. And I'm not saying it's just Biden. I know it's his, the yeah. people he hires. It's the, well, he hires he, good people. That's half the battle. That's half the job, the president. 99%, I would yeah, argue. I would argue you're um, right. So here's the deal. He's in those negotiations, and they do this thing, which I really object to, the, the you know, putting some, you know, job requirements on for people over 50, this sort of punishing thing. Bad deal. But then they put all sorts of language in that expands access to SNAP in other ways. Right. So at the end of the day, while there's things in there I really object to, the fact of the matter is, they actually, in some ways, expanded the food stamp SNAP, you know, program. Right. And how Kevin McCarthy comes out of this deal, you know, with an expansion of the thing that he was trying to basically, Hell. you know, wreck, uh, I think it sums it up. The right. truth of the matter is we may agree or disagree with Biden's approach or his stand on a particular thing, but you cannot deny that he won from where he was coming from. Yep. He won this negotiation. Yep. And it goes, it flies right in the face. And, you, and circling back what you said at the very beginning of this, this part of the conversation is he is a creature of Washington done this long time. I said this last year with uh, the, the the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, right? You couldn't have had a, 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 a crisis more tailor-made for Joseph R. Biden, right? I mean, yeah. this is a guy who builds coalitions. He works behind the scenes. He's not looking for, he really isn't looking for a ton of credit. It almost frustrates a lot of us who, are, who support mm-hmm. him. You know, it's like, well, we should take more credit. Uh, it's hurting our stand, but, but he worked behind the scenes. He, he expanded NATO, for God's sake, the first time, you know. I mean, and so it, in many ways, this crisis was tailor-made for Biden, too. Okay, you want to play hardball? Great. Bring it. I've, I've been doing this with men. I, he, literally, he's negotiating with, you know, who, who's the opponents? You know, Boebert and Green. They weren't even born when Joe Biden oh. was negotiating with intransient foes in Washington, D.C. Joe Biden was dealing with nuclear issues. Right, right. Before 
you know, most members of con- the current Congress were, were even, you know, imagining political careers, a Cold War. And, and, and so here's, here's I, I think, one of the subtleties of this thing. Um, if we're honest with ourselves, right, it's all about politics. Right. I hate to tell you, you cover policy, but the truth is politics, elections, that's where we define where power is obtained. That's the truth. That's where I live. And you can almost see the 2024 campaign ads, right? You know, and you talk about, you know, the country was kind of blessed to get Joe Biden in this moment. And our, of course, our Republicans will say, how can you say that? What a, what a ridiculous statement. But think about this. You, you get a challenge with Russia coming at you, right? With even a nuclear component to you. Yeah. The president of the United States, again, if you, you can agree or disagree with how he's handled particular aspects of it, I'm critical of some aspects of what he's done. Yep. But the fact of the matter is you have someone who is fully experienced, who literally has on his phone the speed dial of people in Russia yep. who he can talk to, right? And people in NATO and people around the world. This is a guy who has 50-some years' experience in dialing down nuclear conflicts, right? And in you know, dealing with NATO and stuff. Again, criticize if you want, but understand his skills are. Then you flip over to, you know, a divided Congress, right? There's no one in American politics today, no one with more experience with a divided Congress at the upper levels yeah. than, than Joe Biden, right? Been there with, been there with Nixon, literally in Nixon's time, been there with Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush again, you know, Obama, Trump, right? I mean, he's been through it all. Yep. And and does he know how to negotiate? Yes, he does. And who is his longtime negotiating partner? Again, we're talking about what the ad might say, you know, how you might portray this for a sort of a, a swing audience, not for the mainstream Democrats, but a swing audience in a battleground state or maybe even a more conservative state. Say, look, the guy that he's negotiated with again and again over the better part of uh, 40 years, Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell. Yep. Right. And I don't like McConnell. I'm not a fan. Nope. But the fact of the matter is, you look at the basics of this thing, you'd be hard pressed to get somebody who's got more of the experience to deal with a moment like this internationally and domestically than Joe Biden. And McConnell came out today uh, as we shoot the show saying, support, I want this bill passed as soon as possible. <laughs> I mean, it was a, not just a classic McConnell one sentence, you know, I want to pass this bill. Okay. Yeah, and, and I mean, the deal's the done. The fact of the matter is, I guarantee McConnell wants to pass this bill. Yep. He really wants to pass it. He's yep. not going to say a lot, because no. he frankly doesn't want it to be deconstructed yep. by the right wing within his own party. Yep. He'd prefer not to have a Trump truth social statement about it, yep. right? Uh, but the fact of the matter is that Biden and McConnell, you know, they've got a long history together. Yep. And so uh, this is, you know, this is like the kind of like deepest, most practical politics. Again, a kind of politics that many Americans are sick of, a kind of politics that many Americans can criticize, right? But when you are looking at the prospect of nuclear war or collapsing the domestic economy, do you want someone who is at least experienced enough to go into the room and probably avoid the worst result? Right. And that's governing. I mean, this is this and is what we wanted. This is the, for those of us who were long time never Trumpers, came over and then worked very hard uh, supporting uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Biden against Mr. Trump. Everything else. That's we, we we wanted to see our government function. You know, we wanted to see some mm-hmm. decency. You know, and 
and and it's not going to be comfortable. It's, it's I, I've said this multiple times. Look, it's it normalcy. It's easy to forget. Like you said, it's it's not. We're not going to get what we want, um, nope. but we'll get enough, and and we'll move the for- nation forward incrementally. That's the history of America. It moves forward incrementally. It's not great. It's not perfect. But it's democracy, and democracy is ugly as shit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Fred, I'll tell you. Sometimes it moves forward incrementally, and it's too incremental, right? Right. It's actually right, right, right. right? And, right. and before the Civil War, it was too incremental, right? We we needed to address the original sin of the American experiment. Yeah. And, and in many ways, right? it still is. Yes. And um, in the in, in the period you know after the Civil War, I mean, again, too incremental, ugly, and horrible, and awful. And not just for uh, blacks and Hispanics, people of color in general, denied the franchise, et cetera, but women. Um, and, you know, so we can find our times in history where we look back and we say, how could they have been so slow? Yep. Right. Yep. And we shouldn't be happy about that. We can be no. very critical of it. However, what we also must understand is that, and I've said this a lot in articles that I've written, the American experiment is far more fragile than people think. It's a strong country, strongest economically, strongest militarily in the world. It's not to deny that. But the actual experiment with democracy is pretty fragile. Yeah. It can be um, undermined in a lot of ways, and it has been historically. You know, red scares, uh, suspension of civil liberties, uh, Japanese internment. I mean, you can find all sorts of examples of where we really we went the wrong direction and we did harmful things. Yeah. So that when we understand the fragility of it, that's where we have to look at moments like this and say, we do not want to be slow. We don't want to be incremental in solving the great problems of our time, right? Racism, inequality, climate crisis. At the same time, we do want to maintain, you know, the basic structure of democracy to make sure that that fragile experiment doesn't collapse. Yep. And I think, and, and, it, and again, it's not a comfortable movement. I had Kevin Cruz, uh, the historian on that show, a couple of weeks ago. Brilliant. We, you know, really focus on those, those moments, right? And and how each time those moments arrived, those in power, you know, said, "Oh, you're going too fast. You're shoving it down our throats, right?" You know, and 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 you hear those same yes, words being yeah. used today. I yeah. literally, I literally had somebody in my mentions yesterday because I had obviously I had Charles Clymer on last week, transgender activist and veteran myself. Like me and and people, oh I, I don't have a problem with transgender people it just I, I don't like them jamming it down our throats and nobody's what no. are you talking about yeah. <laughs> them existing is not jamming it down your throat you know that this it's is your problem you're argument. choking and, yeah you're choking and, you on your know, own bullshit it's but and it's it's clearly done as a political strategy yeah but as long as we're talking politics for a second let me tell you it's not working right it's a failed political strategy and it's a, just a question of when Republicans are actually going to wake up to this um, and stop actually harming especially young people, right? I mean, they're they're doing harm as part of a political strategy. Right. Um, but it's not working. The right. fact is that if you look around the country, um, you're going to see all over the country where, you know, trying to run on these, you know, really super divisive social issues hasn't worked on abortion rights, on trans issues, on LGBTQ issues, on books in schools. There's a lot of evidence from this election cycle, 2023, that it's just not connecting across this country. And I think it's one of the reasons why um, we will see in the course of the next few months a repositioning by Ron DeSantis. Currently, he is running as the anti-woke candidate. Yep. Um, at some point, when his poll numbers are unbelievably, staggeringly dismal, he will reposition. Right. He'll he'll kind of try and move off some of this woke stuff and try and find something else. I know that to be the case because I watched Scott Walker run for president in yeah. 20. 15, 2016, 
And Scott Walker ran on this anti-labor agenda from Wisconsin, something that had worked for, for him to some extent in one place at one time. And it absolutely didn't translate nationally. And DeSantis's anti-woke stuff is not going to translate nationally. He will be shredded by Trump. Yep. Trump will shred him on, on not just this stuff, but in general. And he will also be isolated by the other candidates. I agree. And so once we understand it in that context, um, you know, I, I, I say this to people who are hurting and who are really taking some hard hits at this time, you know, we're going to come through this. And what's going to the other end of this is going to be a recognition that these incredibly cruel and destructive attacks, right, are um, not what the American people want and not what's going to win politically. I agree. Let me, uh, let me, I'm going to pick that thread up again. We're going to take a break for uh, hear from our great sponsors. Hey, look, everybody knows how annoying cheap raises are. The cuts, the irritation, the frustration, and don't get me started on subscription razor services. The headaches they can cause if they show up on your doorstep. That's why you got to meet Henson Shaving. Henson Shaving is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts of the ISS and the Mars rover, and now they're bringing precision engineering to your shaving experience. And, and I'm an old pilot, so I love me some aerospace manufacturing, let me tell you. Now, razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more wobble. The more wobble, the more nicks, cuts, and scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. By using aerospace grade CNC machines, Henson makes metal razors that extend just .0013 inches, which is less than the width of a hair. That means a secure and stable blade with a vibration-free shave. It gets better. The razor is built in channels to evacuate hair and cream and makes clogging virtually impossible. So seriously, Henson Shaving wants the best razor, not the best razor business. That means no plastic, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. The Henson razor works with standard dual-edged razor blades to give you that old-school shave, like me, with the benefits of new-school tech. So once you own a Henson razor, it's only about, I don't know, 3 to $5 per year to replace the blades. So I tell you, I don't shave often, obviously. But my first shave with the Henson razor was incredibly refreshing. The design is sleek, and the durability is top-notch. The Henson razor is truly so much better than your run-of-the-mill razor, and it's you know, the quote-unquote traditional razor bland that you're used to. Now, the affordable factor is absolutely game-changing. No more wasting your money on expensive blades. With Henson shaving, you can get like a year of blades for around $5. So, it's time to say no to subscriptions. Say yes to a razor that lasts you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com fred to pick the razor for you and use code FRED. And you'll get two years' worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure to add them to your cart. Right, two years of blades. So that's 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G.com slash bread. And use code FRED when you're there. Check them out. And we're back. And, and, and talk about Ron DeSantis. Um, you know, he's a fish in the race. Uh, and he's already saying absolutely scary shit. <laughs> yes. now, let me read you. I, I know you saw he was in an Iowa church last night. And I want to I want to read. Uh, there's a, a quote. Uh, that I think the post this story about it. It was New York Times. He said, "We must choose a path that will lead to a revival of American greatness." He told supporters in an evangelical church in the suburbs of Des Moines. In a strident speech, he painted a dark picture of America, saying it would be a uh, he would be a solve to a quote malignant ideology that was taking hold across the nation. 
He described children facing, quote, indoctrination. He mocked transgender athletes, denounced the, quote, woke Olympics of diversity programs, and reveled in his battle with Disney. And he ended with this, which is something I was reading on the way in here, uh, an analysis of, he said this quote, which is chilling. It is time we impose our will on Washington, D.C., and you can't do any of this if you don't win, which is being interpreted by a lot of folks as a, a rallying cry for Christian nationalists and, and others who have been saying they want to take over Washington. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, this, you know I, I love when graduates, of course, I love it. you take on the elites. I love when a graduate of Harvard kneels to cry elites. Uh, you know, but this all sounds chillingly fascist. You know, it, it, like, like if you read it with a German or Italian accent, it gets really fascist. It's like, you know, what, what DeSantis represents even a more extreme than, than what we've seen from Trump, right? Of course, he's more structurally extreme, right? Okay. He is he's smart. He is a career politician. Um, unlike Trump, Trump is Trump is a desperate, damaged mess of an individual, yep. right? Who will kind of go whatever direction he thinks protects him and gets him through. We've seen that in his business career. We've seen that in his political career. Uh, even now, we're seeing you know sort of bizarre statements from Trump on abortion rights and other issues. You know, where he's sort of like trying to thread the needle and things like that which from anybody else would be hugely destructive. In fact, I was just listening to uh, an interview with a Iowa, you know, very conservative anti-choice, leading anti-choice activist who was extremely critical of Trump, right? And, and very enthusiastic about the Santa Summit. But Trump's, Trump's actually he's trying to win. He's trying to survive. DeSantis right. um, is, is interesting because you read that quote, and that's an important quote. He had another quote a few days ago where he was talking about literally destroying his enemies, right? right? They said, we want left power it. in order to destroy the left, right? It isn't. We want power because we've got better ideas, and once we are in power for a while, we're going to implement those ideas, and the left won't win because people are going to like what we do so much else. No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. No. He's saying we want power to aggressively seek to destroy the left. Right to destroy our political foes, our political rivals. Yep. That is, you know, that is straight on authoritarianism in the in the ugliest way. You can go back to the 20th century at the worst, some of the worst moments in the 20th century. That's the sort of thing. That's the sort of thing yep. that you heard. Right out right? strong. Right out strong. That's what we're thinking. <laughs> you know. And so I think DeSantis, and, and I've been really toying with this a lot. I mean, I look a lot at the Republican Party. I think the Republican Party is a fascinating party. I come from Wisconsin. The Republican Party founded in Wisconsin in 1854 by uh, pretty much leftists, you know, uh, the land reformers, yep. you know, opponents of human bondage, uh, yep. you know, some of them uh, socialists, right, or at least social democrats. Yep. I mean, it's interesting who founded it back in the 1850s. Immigrants, a lot of immigrants. Yep. Um, people who have been part of the 1848 revolutions in Europe and Germany and places like that. So I've watched the Republican Party's evolution over, you know, a long time and been very interested in it. And the, the truth of the matter is that that what is is happening now within the Republican Party is that a, a narrow set of people, a narrow set of political figures, I think actually understand they can't win an honest vote. They, they're not stupid. DeSantis isn't stupid. Um, Trump doesn't, Trump isn't stupid either, but Trump doesn't know politics. He's not a political veteran. He's going by instinct and his gut. DeSantis is going, you know, more structurally. And what DeSantis knows is that there's a portion of the Republican Party that has, is really not too enthusiastic about democracy. Yep. Because 
they can't win a straight fight. That's why they like gerrymandering. That's why they like voter suppression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, and, and when we start to tweak this out and look at DeSantis, he is essentially saying this. That's the translation from what right. you read, what we're talking about in these other statements. Yep. Give me the nomination. Give me power. I will figure out how to make us the winners, even if we don't have popular support, even if we don't have the vast support that we would need. And, and here's where it gets really interesting. If you look at what DeSantis has done down in Florida, right? He did win his reelect, and we give him that. Don't deny it. He won his reelect by a pretty comfortable margin against a candidate who, you know, had been defeated before, and, and there was a lot of lot of challenges there. But here's the interesting thing: in power, what has DeSantis done? He has tried to remove a Democratic district attorney he disagreed with, literally remove a local elected prosecutor who he disagreed with. Yep. He has intervened in school board races across the state, trying to disempower and defeat even Republican-leaning school board members who he who just want to follow the rules. Um, again and again and again on gerrymandering on voter suppression, issue after issue after issue, Ron DeSantis in power seeks to make it impossible for those who disagree with him to, you know, create a counterbalance to that in a legislature, at the local level, at the school board level. And uh, you give somebody like that the presidency with a supportive Congress, which is, by the way, what Donald Trump had the first two years of, of his presidency, you give someone like that it's going to be very different than what you had with Trump. Trump was bumbling, inept on a lot of things, and had a lot of Republican resistance on top of, of uh, you know, Democratic resistance. Um, DeSantis, were he to come to power and somehow economy goes down, things mess up, somehow DeSantis comes in, watch out. Yeah. Because that, I think, would be an incredibly dangerous moment for America. Yeah, he's not afraid to use his power to intimidate, to, you know, attack uh, and there's no one. There's no one that's free from his attacks, and it's just going to get worse. And and, yeah. and that and that is a very chilling thing to hear someone say is a destroy. And and I, I you know I tweet these stuff out, and I get I get the replies. And the, you're damn right, leftism needs to be destroyed. I just don't think that's. A, I mean, in the end, I think there's a, look. It's like Trump. Trump. Trump lost in 2020 because he lost four to six percent of the Republicans who voted for him the first time. Uh, yeah. I called them the normie Republicans. And and I'm not sure. And I, and I know these Norman and people who listen to the show a lot hear me talk about these Norman Republicans. I have I have relatives, for example, who are longtime Republicans, older Americans, and they're in their in their late seventies, eighties, and and I don't think they're going to be more any more turned on by the idea of destruction. Uh, <laughs> you know, that then I hope not. I, I hope I, not I you know, it's 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 not. I, I think it goes you know? against. If you're old enough, you remember what you fought for. In, right. In words There's along that. the way. Right. And and it was very much a pluralist kind of you know, honest democracy in America, one that had competing sides and competing views, yeah. but did try to, to sort things out. Here's one of the, the interesting things about this, um, this notion of destroying your opponents too, right? Um, it actually takes an immense amount of energy away from governing. Right. Right? You end up having a, a period of, of governance that doesn't ad address fundamental issues. Right. And, and I will tell you something. I, I some of my... I think people are very kind to me, I guess. A lot of, a lot of people that, that follow what I do. I will, you know, I'm very much on the left. There's no question of that. Yes. But I will, on a regular basis, write something favorable to Republicans. Yep. I've written quite a bit about Rand Paul saying that in budget negotiations, the Pentagon budget should be on the table. 
people are not aware of that. That Rand Paul is the one guy who actually says says this on a relatively regular basis. Justin Amash, former member of Congress, used to say it. Yep. Um, and these are not people that I agree with. I've written some pretty tough stuff, some pretty negative stuff about Rand Paul over the years. But I have a piece up today at the Nation site that quotes Rand Paul on on some of these negotiations or about the Pentagon budget. And I think what we have to understand is there can be conservatives who we fundamentally disagree with, who I, I may fundamentally disagree with, but who are coming at it from a at least somewhat intellectually honest standpoint, right? Like actual and, conservative. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I respect who stick to their actual principles. At least I understand where you're coming from. Well, but, but to also to that that if if you're if you're having a discussion about you know reducing the debt, right? Right. And you say you come into the thing and you say, yeah, we should go after the social programs because. I'm a right-wing Republican. I don't like social programs. Right. But we should also put the Pentagon on the table because it's it's got a lot of you know waste, fraud, abuse. Right. We should find our ways to to kind of make this all make this all part of the yeah. the negotiation. That's an intellectually honest approach, even if I disagree with elements of it. Right. Yeah. You know. Um, and and I think that that this is this is one of the things that we can actually say that this country could have. A left and a right that actually battle each other on a battle of ideas. Right. That found occasional places of compromise that that actually functioned as a country. I think it ultimately in that discourse the left would win, the progressives would win. But um, my conservative friends think opposite. That's right. fine. Where the gap comes in, where the real gap comes in, is where there's folks who say, "I want to destroy the other side." Right. Right. I want to. I want to ruin them because. That then makes, puts governing off the table and means that all of the energy is going to be this incredible battle, right, of those who want to destroy their opponents and those who struggle to have their opponents survive, right? And it, it's, it's a way to waste four years. Right. And, and, and the only thing that lose is the American people who aren't being having governor. You know, all this is great, but let's, in the end, let's keep something clear. They have to beat Donald J. Trump. And, and they won't. And he won't. I mean, and, and, and I was laughing. I said, well, I, I made a sarcastic tweet today saying, well, the thing is, if, you know, if Ron puts up a great campaign and wins this thing, I'm sure Trump will gracefully acknowledge his loss and support the nominee of his party. And so the delusion, oh. the delusion, I mean, everybody in the media, especially, nothing against you guys, I love you to death. It, we really want this horse race to be real. But if anybody thinks that Donald Trump won't nuclear strike the entire effing party, Somebody, it down. Yeah. somebody other than him. Yeah. You're exactly right. It's, it's not going to happen. You know, it's like. Well, that's why know. DeSantis is running around saying he'd pardon Trump. He's hoping that that would be. Right. And to, to maybe, you know, win him right. over or something like that. But but here's the bottom line Trump does not have full control of his supporters. No. They are so enthusiastically pro Trump that many of them don't yeah. even listen to Trump when he tries to temper them. And he doesn't try to temper them very often. It's moved beyond but, him. Right. And so here's one thing I would tell you. I guarantee you, if by some chance somebody beat Trump for the nomination, right, which isn't going to happen in my view, no. but let's say DeSantis or even Chris Christie, whatever, somebody beats, beats him for the nomination, I guarantee you there will be swing states where the write-in vote for Donald Trump will be the margin of difference that tips the state for Biden. I guarantee you. I agree. I agree. Because people that will literally, some people just won't come, a yeah. chunk, they're, they're but other ones will come and they will write in Donald Trump. It's a giant number, and that number we talked about earlier—that Trump needed six to four, six, four to six percent of the uh, of the Republican 
uh, that didn't vote from the first, but he needs that. That's the margin in our country. Yeah. When, look, half his supporters will never vote for someone else. So it's just, it's almost, it's kind of fun to watch these fools kill themselves and spend millions of dollars on and what will be ultimately the most fruitless of possible campaigns because the fact is, his, his main supporters, there, there is a hardcore, look, it's, say it's 30%, but there's a hardcore, like you said, 10 to 15 that will never leave and that's Donald millions Trump, of voters. period. That's billions of voters. Billions, millions, yeah. yeah. And that's why, to my mind, and I'll say something that, you know, that, that may not, many people may disagree with it. I'm glad Christie's sick of running because he's been pretty critical of Trump. Yeah. More critical than some. I yeah. think that's, that's good. I hope that Sununu runs because he's been quite critical of Trump yeah. on, a, on a lot of things. And actually has, on some of the social issues, has been, and not on all of them, but on some has been a little bit more, you know, mainstream. But the person who I actually think should run even though she would crash and burn and lose horribly, is Liz Cheney. Mm, yep. I think she should run to to get in those debates and have, you know, like a fundamental debate about the soul of the Republican Party. She will not win. She will not be the nominee. But what a terrible waste of time if the Republican debates are between Donald Trump, who is literally shredding all of his opponents with, you know, cheap shots and, and nicknames and things like that. Yep. And a bunch of, of challengers to Trump who literally won't take him on, right? Who right. won't like challenge him and have a real discourse, a real debate. Right. And um and so again, I, I've probably been more critical of the Cheneys than anyone in America uh <laughs> for twenty years. Ever. <laughs> I, I wrote a very, you know, tough uh or biography of Dick Cheney decades ago. Yep. Uh, but what I can tell you is I would hope that Liz Cheney would run because she actually wants to argue with Trump. Yeah. And that's that would be interesting. That would be healthy. But a bunch of sycophantic, you know, people who are kind of waiting for Trump to stumble or to be arrested or something like that, um, but won't criticize him. Right. I mean, what a what a you know, you're, we talk a lot about democracy on this show. You talk a lot about democracy. What an insult to democracy to have a, a primary process and debates that don't even have a discourse about whether Donald Trump should define the Republican Party. Yeah. Well, as a Democratic strategist and, and political consultant, I love it. <laughs> I'm eating this shit up, brother. I mean, you know, look at just eat each other alive. I mean, they're all afraid to criticize the guy, and they're all trying to run like to the right. It, it, it's just a, a circus. Um, and we're already, you know, you and I could talk all day. I do want to, you know, the one of the reasons I reached out to you uh, to come on the show is I've been eager to talk ever since you wrote your piece in the Capitol Times, which you've been there forever, I think 20 years, um, about the Wisconsin Democrats, what they can learn from that Supreme Court race. We just, that the race got nationalized, of course. Uh, um, um, I saw a lot of things you said in there. It's like, you know, the reason Janet won was she went hard on these issues. She went hard on abortion. She went hard on, uh, on, on the, and she was, she did not run from her, her, um, her, her progressive roots. And she did well. She moved the needle in districts that had been Republican. She won, was that Van Orden's, Van Orden's district by 48%. She took, which is shocking that she took that much of the vote. Um, you know, what do you see? Is there, is there a roadmap for uh, that election for Democrats nationally, not just Wisconsin? I mean, I, I, do you see, I mean, we saw the youth turnout. I mean, there's some real key indicators. Yeah. That race, to me, I walked away from saying, man, there's a lot of really interesting indicators here for a race. I mean, I'd love your thoughts on that. To hear, you know, what should what should national Democrats and, and, and congressional candidates and others take from Janet's race and, and maybe put in their own kit bag? 
I noticed you're saying Janet because you're, you're afraid I, to I will do it. I did it wrong on the show before. <laughs> John, I admitted, I admitted I screwed it up on the show and I heard got cut. Oh, no. But I, I think that's one of the great successes of uh, Ben Wickler, the chairman of the uh, Wisconsin Democratic Party, that they actually got a lot of people to figure out how to say Protestant. Yeah, it's like Buttigieg. Um, <laughs> I learned how to say Buttigieg. <laughs> I do respect those people who honestly just say Judge Janet. And, I, and that's happened in Wisconsin, too, by the way. Some I, of the strongest so. faculty just say Judge Janet. They didn't I'm always close on words anyway. It's become a bit of a, a bit of a bit on this show, how I can't say things. So. <laughs> but we digress. Again, you can't imagine the number of times where I've tried to talk around something because I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Um, but it's Janet Persewitz, and yep. she won. She won 55-45, yep. almost 56-44. Um, and she won in counties across the state, uh, not just Milwaukee and uh, Dane counties, that's Madison, which are the big Democratic, you know, vote generators, not just the old industrial cities like uh, Janesville, Racine, Kenosha, Eau Claire, La Crosse. She won in rural counties in southern and western Wisconsin yeah. where, uh, you know, they voted for Barry Goldwater. Wow. Um, and, and if she didn't win, she was still getting, you know, 44, 40, you know, 5, 48% of the vote, even in some of those suburban Milwaukee counties that have historically been the big generators of Republican vote. Which is how you and win a statewide race. You win a statewide race by getting incremental everywhere. Yeah, you do good right. all over. Do good all and, over. But she didn't just do good. She actually won a lot of places yeah. where Democrats haven't always won in recent years. And so what did they do? And as I would argue there's a, one of the big mistakes that's made, and there was just a piece in political uh, the other day, a good piece, well, well reported and thoughtful, but it, it kind of argued that abortion was the only issue, like it was the defining issue. Abortion rights was a very, very important issue. Janet Prosevitz was blunt about the fact that she supports a woman's right to choose. Yes. That, making that statement, I think, was very beneficial to her. But it was also beneficial to her to say she didn't like gerrymandering. It was beneficial to her to say she believed in labor rights. It was beneficial to her to, frankly, be very blunt about a lot of issues, to make it clear what she, where she was coming from. And also, so you got that first, that openness about where you're coming from and putting it in perspective and, and leveling with people. That matters. It helps to generate turnout, especially among your potential base. It helps to swing people who may be swing voters from the other side. Then the next thing she did was put a tremendous amount of money into rural radio. Democrats haven't done that a lot in recent yeah. uh, years. She was literally advertising all over rural radio in Wisconsin, signaling that she wanted the votes of rural people, and she wanted a lot of votes from them, and she got a lot of them. She won a lot of rural counties, especially in the western part of the state, wow. uh, which is a very critical swing area. The final thing was that she recognized, and this is something that, that, that all of this translates, I think, to the national level. She recognized demographic changes and regional changes. The uh, For a while there, the Democrats just thought that the Milwaukee suburbs were going to be Republican, yeah. and that it's wasted energy to go after those those areas to try and get 45, 48% in those areas. What she realized is that as people move out of Milwaukee into the suburbs, young families, right? These are often pretty liberal folks, right? And they're more multi-ethnic, multi-racial. And so putting a lot of resources into those areas, not just with a message on abortion rights, but also with a broader progressive message can start to generate turnout in places where you never thought you were going to get the turnout, right? right? And so all of these strategies can translate to any battleground state across the country. And the final thing I would suggest is 
Janet Proceros as a candidate came from a working class background. She put herself through college and law school working as a waitress, right? Yep. And she talked about that. Yep. And one thing that Democrats have to recognize is, yeah, sometimes you're going to have a wealthy candidate and somebody who's born of privilege, and that you know that's that's a part of it. And I don't deny that reality. But I'll tell you something: that was very effective that she came across as somebody who has these progressive stands on a lot of issues, but comes from a, a working class background that that understands you know where people who are struggling to make ends meet, to keep a job, to pay off a mortgage, where they're coming from. Yeah. And I think that that uh, that genuineness, that that sense of, of being somebody who people can understand and people can vote for with an element of confidence, right? Yeah, I think that really worked for her. Yeah, and I think one thing I've seen in some of my races that I had I had some races in, in fairly conservative districts, and my candidates, you know, really wanted to avoid those really controversial issues. Like, well, you know, we're going to need Republicans, and I tell them over and over, you're wasting your time. That That's right. This environment, you're you're not going to win over Republicans for you, especially the congressional candidates. It's not. What you do need to do is turn the hell out your 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 Democrats. You need to turn out your youth. You need to turn out your angry women. You need to turn out those actual those are remaining independents. Maybe they don't vote much. They you don't have a record of them because they've never actually voted. You know, and I and I'm curious. I, mean, I have to ask because I added it to my my script. It's like, yeah. what was her message on? I mean, it, look, I, I love you brought that up because I live in Missouri. Rural radio is a yeah. big damn deal. It, it's it's the only thing you really get out there. It's, the it's a big deal. It is still a big people people who are who are even me who left Missouri and went around the country, ended up in D.C. and Richmond, back in Missouri again. It's still surprising to me. That, I mean, the, the, that's where Rush Limbaugh came from, and there's still yeah. a mini little Rush Limbaugh with these with these jackass political guys here in Missouri, Nick Schroer, the, the idiot senator. <laughs> you know, they're but they're when you look at their bio, you discover they've got a rural, they've got a radio show, right? Uh, and it's it's overwhelmingly conservative. And I'm I'm just I just love the fact she went that place because that people are hearing their messages. There. What was her message? Like, what was the message she was sending to those folks? Oh, it was it was targeted, right? It was that that a lot of issues that come to come to the legislature um, do involve you know concerns of rural people, right? right? About land, land ownership, yeah. water land rights, ownership, right? Yeah, all sorts of things like that. She didn't trim her sails on anything. She didn't try to you know create a false impression that or something like that. But she did talk about where she was coming from, and and these targeted messages I think were effective. But here's something else she did. She didn't just buy, you know, kind of like without thinking. Her campaign didn't just buy without thinking. Ben Knuckles and some of the people who did her campaign, they they thought about where they were buying. And here's an interesting thing. You think about rural radio, right? And you and I think about the farm report. Sure. And we think about the weather, right? That my brother-in-law is a dairy farmer in, in rural Wisconsin. He listens to a lot of radio because he wants to know what the weather is going to be, right? And I, my brother-in-law can tell you, that it rained three weeks ago on Thursday and how much it rained, right? It's just, it's his, he's a farmer, right? It's where he's coming from. So this all matters to him. But there's a lot of people who live in rural areas who listen to um, classic rock stations, yep. who listen to country stations. And, and Janet Persewitz's campaign bought a lot on those stations yep. because especially listening to some of the rock stations, you're getting somewhat younger folks yep. and who are not necessarily tapped into politics, but this made sense to them, Right. And so it was very smart buys in, in a lot of places. And, and this is something I've said for decades. I grew up in a town of, uh, when I was born, my town, Union Grove, Wisconsin, had 970 people. I was 971. Nice. Right? And, and so I know these places. What I know is you cannot lose 
the rural sections of a swing state uh, 80-20. You can lose it, you know, 60-40, 35, you know, you can lose it, you know, like 65-35 even, maybe, but you can't lose 80-20. You can't be wiped out. And the fact of the matter is the only way to avoid being wiped out is to generate a bump turnout. Yeah. To give you an example, in uh, the 1990s, there was a Supreme Court race, statewide race, um, and it won by a liberal, uh, and the turnout was around 800,000. In this year's race in Wisconsin, the turnout was 1.8 million, more than doubled the turnout. Now, some of that, good chunk of that's Madison, chunk of that maybe Milwaukee and some other cities, but there was a lot of that in rural areas, and when you get new people turning out in rural areas, and just remember, after Trump, after the Republican waves of the past, the new people that are coming out aren't Republicans, no. right? They're the, the disenchanted, disenfranchised potential Democratic voters who hadn't thought it mattered, who hadn't thought that they could have an influence, who are coming out and voting. Janet Persay would figure that out. And I will tell you this, the lesson on that is that if Democrats in Wisconsin figure that out, they could potentially win two congressional seats out of the handful that they need to get control of the House, they could win two of them in Wisconsin, even with the current maps, and potentially with a redraw, at least two, maybe another one. I doubt it, but, but at least two. And this holds true across the country. I can identify 25 to 30 districts where, with the right messaging, and these are all districts that tend to be, you know, with some urban centers, but also with a substantial rural section to them, where, uh, you know, you could potentially see a shift. The only way you're going to get that, though, is to move resources to those places and to make sure that you have messaging that, that actually speaks to the people that live there. Well, and and again, as a campaign strategist, radio is really cheap. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's the best yeah. part. And this is one of the first frustrations I have. Like, look, for everything you just said about you have you can't lose 80-20, I have two words for our listeners. Glenn Youngkin. Okay. Yep. Everybody's constantly. Oh, Glenn Youngkin won because he convinced suburban moms mm-mm, up mm-mm. in right mm-mm. up in Nova about CRT. Are you anybody who says that knows nothing about Virginia nothing. or that race? Glenn Youngkin won, won in rural southwestern exactly Virginia. because his yeah. opponents stayed home. They didn't and, bother, and he was getting those eighty twenty results. He was running exactly. better than Trump. They stayed in the home. Country. They stayed home. They stayed yeah. home. And, and, and because and shame on Terry McAuliffe for not figuring yes, that out. It was very fresh. I, I've talked to I've talked to youth voter activists who offered themselves, prostrated themselves uh, for the uh, uh, the McAuliffe campaign and got nothing until it was too late. And, if I can tell you, you know, yeah, throw something quick on because I know please. we're getting you know, yeah, the yeah, I gotta, yeah. One quick final notion or one quick notion here. I was just last week in Mississippi, okay, looking at the campaign of Brandon Presley for governor down yeah. there and some of the other races. I know. I know. Brandon no leftist. I'll tell you that he's a he's a pretty centrist, uh, even uh, socially kind of conservative guy. Yeah. Uh, he's populist on some economics, utility issues, stuff like that. Um, and I'll tell you that what that guy's doing. He's going county by county, even yeah. into the most rural counties uh, all over Mississippi. And if you look at the polling data as a Democrat, he's holding his own, even in some polls, a little ahead of Tate Reeves down there. Yep. And you and and what Brandon Presley who was the mayor of a small town in Mississippi and is a relatively distant cousin of Elvis Presley. Yep. Um, what he has figured out is that for a Democrat to compete, he has got to go to, you know, those those crossroads towns, 
those places that have been forgotten by Democrats and Republicans over the years and really spend time there. And, and it, it, is it, does it require a lot of energy? Yeah, it does, right? You got to work really hard. It's hard. You have to it's think hard. about what you're saying to kind of reach people. Yeah, you got to do that. Yep. But I will tell you, in looking at that Mississippi race, I came away with the impression that if Democrats put some resources there, um, they might actually have a, an upset in the making, or at least the potential of an upset, because they've got a candidate who, to my mind, again, well, I disagree with them so on a number of issues, but they've got a candidate who understands some of what you and I have just been talking about the last five minutes. I love it, and I've, I've been very impressed by him. I actually know some of his campaign team uh, from yeah. some of my previous work, and they're a great crew. He's assembled a great crew. I, I actually measure a lot of candidates that way. I'm like, who have you assembled? <laughs> you know, because again, if you want to see how someone's going to govern, see what kind of campaign they run. And and I've been very impressed by what president's put together, and I'm, I'm thrilled you've been down there. But but that is the lesson. I think I think we I think we, that's a great place to just kind of wrap is 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 you do have to run everywhere, and running everywhere doesn't have to be expensive. It's not easy either. It's not look. Everyone wants to do social media. Look, that farmer is not checking his effing Facebook. No. You know, it's like you know, it, it, yeah, no, you know, you and and you've got to know your audience. You got to reach them where they are. And, and I think too often a lot of and I and I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna blame the political class. I'm gonna blame the the D Triple C approved uh, strategist and, and again, you know, consultants who, who swoop into a state and don't know it. Yeah, people are listening to radio. I'm just thrilled that, that the folks who ran her campaign in Wisconsin understood the audience they were trying to reach and sent the messages they needed to. And it shows again when I, when I was reading your article, you forty eight percent in some of these these districts is, oh, yeah. is shocking. But but again, it's because she did the work. Um, she did the work. She bought she the, the money. She had the money, which is great. Yeah, I mean, again, there, it takes money, and we and we don't do a good job of prioritizing but races. But she did exhausting hard work. And that's she what, went to the in in the winter, cold cold winter days in Wisconsin yeah. where it's twenty below. She went to the far northwest of Wisconsin that's closer to Canada than it is to Milwaukee, yeah. right? And she's up in each of those counties spending substantial amounts of time. Yeah. Um, you combine that, right? That's the way you do it. That's simple. You lay down the base by physically going there and spending time with people so they're excited about you and so that they will go out and work for you. So then you overlay that with radio and other things. Yeah. Um, that can be a transformative politics. Man, I could talk to you all day, John. Uh, I know we've got a we've got a, a deadline. I want to let you go. I, I, as you mentioned, I have five other questions to ask. So you just got to come back on. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, we'll just keep bringing you back until we all get sick of each other. But what I really appreciate your time and, and the work you do. I know, um, you know, it's uh, I get a lot of. I guess funny. I get a lot of conservative voices. I'd love to get progressive voices who are 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 questioning the system so well. So thanks so much for everything you do, and I appreciate you keeping up the fight for us. It's an honor to be with you, my friend. Always a pleasure. Oh man, what a great conversation with John! Uh, just a terrific progressive voice. You know, we, we get the we get the spectrum here on the show, which is what I, I love about on democracy. I think I, I hope hopefully you watch the fact you're going to hear voices. With, you know, you got Bill Crystal on two months ago, and now I got John Nichols. I mean, we, we, I try to offer you unique perspectives, and and I just love the perspective from Wisconsin. Uh, after we went off the air just now, John, and I kept talking about rural voters and, and who resides there, and John pointed out that the the largest population in a lot of rural areas is Native Americans, the growing population of African Americans, a growing population of Latino Americans live in these rural areas who just want to be invited to vote. So, what a wonderful lesson from this this discussion. And uh, and I, I hope you I hope you enjoyed listening. Um, I I also you know before we go as I was coming in for the show, um, you know uh, we were talking about Ron DeSantis. And one of the interesting things is DeSantis, of course, was uh, speaking in Iowa today. So I'm in Missouri. I'm in. Have you guys noticed I'm in short sleeves, right? I, I'd be wearing shorts if I could. It does get chilly in here. Ron DeSantis is in Iowa. It's going to be 
87 degrees in Iowa today. And I just, you got to check out what he's wearing. He's wearing one of the patented Glenn Youngkin fleece caps. Now, if you know who his strategist is, it's a guy named Jeff Rowe. Jeff Rowe is pretty famous. It's a story in the Washington Post about about a week ago. I'll post it in our Substack so you know what I'm talking about. But Jeff, Jeff a, a famous if not notorious strategist, and he ran Glenn Youngkin's campaign as well. And, and of course, we all mock Glenn Youngkin's sweater vest. And here we go. <laughs> and he's like, hey, look, he has no personality. Get him a fleece vest. I mean, he's wearing a fleece vest with a button-down shirt. It's 80 degrees. It's going to stink, but you just got to laugh. So anyway, thanks for finding our show. I just love, I love you being here.